Thank you, uh, Greg and Molly, for that ministry and music. Uh, before uh, I uh, begin tonight, I'd like to give you an update. This morning, I had uh, mentioned a prayer request that came from uh, Jenny um, uh, Merkley that um, her husband is in Indonesia along with uh, a Bible translator with Wycliffe. And the Bible translator, his name is Chase, was bitten uh, by a poisonous snake. And uh, I have an update from Jenny, so I'd like to, to read that. And it says this, Thanks for praying for Chase. He's in stable condition. It has been transferred to another part of Indonesia. Tomorrow he'll be transported to Australia. His wife is also a nurse, had just been to a snake bite seminar the day before he was bitten. So they were prepared. God's timing is amazing. So uh, that's so true, and we're thankful for God's provision for them. And uh, I take it he's not out of the woods, but yet um, thankful that he's doing as well as he is. So let's pray tonight. Our Father, we bring Chase before you one more time, and Lord, we marvel at your goodness. And to think that just the, the day before he was bitten by this poisonous snake, that his wife was at a seminar, uh, learning how to deal with the, the uh, poisonous snake bites. Uh, Lord, uh, uh, we are grateful for your leading and your providential care over us. And uh, Lord, we pray for Chase's well-being. Uh, we pray that all these uh, connections can be made and that he can receive the medical care that he needs and that, the uh, Lord, you would restore him to health and strength. But again, we thank you and praise you for your mercy in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we are looking at uh, Revelation chapter 11, and it is dealing with the two witnesses. So we're looking at that in rather uh, some detail this evening. Uh, I, this handout is quite lengthy, so as we work through the night, I might be talking a little faster and skipping certain points in order to keep within the time span. But uh, I want to be mindful that the most application comes at the end. So uh, we're going to be keeping that in mind as we, we work through this passage. But I get, begin with the ministry of two, the two witnesses, the source of the power of their ministry. The authority and the power of the two witnesses come from God, Revelation 1.13. It says, and I'll grant them authority to my two witnesses. The nature of the ministry is one of preaching the word of God. For it says in verse 3 that I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy. And in this instance, the word prophecy isn't uh, meaning uh, telling the future, but rather that they are declaring the word of God. They're, they're preaching. Uh, they are sharing the gospel message and the reality of all this taking place and what God is doing. The duration of their ministry. The ministry of the two witnesses comes, or excuse me, covers a period of 1,260 days, which equals a period of 42 months, each consisting of 30 days or a total of three and a half years. Revelation 11.3, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. There may be significance in the reference to this period in terms of days and not months. Elsewhere, there is prophetic reference to 42 months, Revelation 
but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. If there is a significance and a reference to days, as opposed to months, for it's the same time span, it might be simply the brevity of time or the consistency of their ministry. Uh, you know, it's like the old story, how long does it take to get rid of a cold? Well, it takes a week. Unless you get medication, then it takes seven days. All right, so uh, seven days is oftentimes thought of as briefer than a week, but it's obviously uh, the same period of time. And, and so it might be talking about the brevity of this uh, three and a half years, uh, don't know for sure. D, the attire in which they are dressed is, uh, for their ministry is one of sackcloth. Revelation 11, verse 3. The sackcloth represents that they are pronouncing a message of judgment and a need for repentance. And then I give you a number of places where people are repenting in sackcloth and ashes. So in the scriptures, sackcloth was a way of putting on uh, a garment demonstrating uh, that one was repentant. So they're pre preaching a message of repentance, turning to God. Number two, the power of the two witnesses to call down fire upon their enemies. The power of the two witnesses to call down fire upon their enemies serves as divine protection for the two witnesses. In 11.5 it says, and if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. And again, in the uh, NIV, and if anyone desires to harm them, the fire proceeds out of the mouth and devours their enemies. The fire pouring from their mouth most likely is not that of a fire-breathing dragon, but rather a metaphor as coming as a result of their command. This would be similar to Revelation chapter 19, verse 21, where the sword is the word of God. Revelation 19, 21. And the rest were slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. In that chapter, it's Jesus Christ. And it says, when it says, you know, the, the sword of his mouth, it's talking about his words. And that those words are forceful and they bring about death. I think the same thing is here. When it's talking about this fire coming from their mouth, I don't think we're actually to think of fire coming out of their mouth, but rather fire is coming as a result of their word, as they're uh, given this authority or power. B, there is similarity here between the ministry of Elijah and that of the two witnesses that provides a basis for understanding. Elijah called down fire upon his enemies as a means of protection against his enemies. The need for protection was due to the unwelcome message of Elijah to King Ahaziah. In 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 4, it reads, Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. That was his message to Ahaziah. Elijah was protected from the king by calling down fire from heaven. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 men. Uh, so um, Elijah leaves and he goes and sits up on top of a hill and Elijah is su summoned to come to see the king and he's not about to go. So as a result, the king sends an army out to bring Elijah back. Verse nine, 
Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Again, again the king sent to him another captain of 50 men with his 50. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered him, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Again, the king sent the captain of a third 50 with his 50. And the third captain of the 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated, O man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of 50 with their 50s. But now let my lips be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him and do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king. So here is an example of Elijah's ministry of which he was able to call down fire from heaven and bring destruction to his enemies and those that opposed the word of God. We have the same thing happening here in the book of Revelation, where these witnesses are given power of God to call down fire from heaven uh, to bring destruction against their enemies. See, the calling down fire from their enemies serves as a divine judgment against the enemy of the two witnesses. <clears throat> Again, we have an instructive portion of scripture regarding Jesus and in his ministry. Uh, you may remember uh, this account. Jesus did not permit his disciples to call down fire from heaven upon their enemies, for he had not come to judge but to save. It was not time for Jesus to judge the world. In Luke chapter 9, verse 53, and it says, And they did not receive him, that is Jesus, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? Elias is the Greek form for the Hebrew name Elijah. Uh, so this is the very same person. They said, Elijah called down fire from heaven. Do you want us to do that? <laughs> do you want us to destroy your enemies? But he answered and rebuked them and said, You know not what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. That is a constant theme in the first coming of Christ. You know John 3.16 well, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The next verse, For God sent not his Son to the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Uh, the great message that comes uh, from the angels uh, is... Behold, I bring you great tidings and great joys, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. It's a message of peace that is come to them. Uh, so Jesus uh, did not take a single life during his earthly ministry. He continually prayed for his enemies. 
that God would not destroy them, that God would not bring judgment upon them. And even as he hung upon the cross, he prayed and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's not talking about give them eternal life. It's preserve them from destruction. Uh, don't slay them as they nail me to this cross, for they don't understand what they were doing. <clears throat> During the tribulation, the time is not for God to save, but to destroy. Now, when I say not to save, not in the absolute sense, uh, as we will see in just a few moments, there will be people saved during the tribulation, but it's primarily a time of judgment. Revelation 11:5, And if anyone would harm them, fire pours down from their mouth and consumes their foes. If any would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. It is not a time of personal vengeance, but rather God's retribution. Number three, uh, the signs and protections that are given to accompany the prophecy of the two witnesses. They have power to withhold rain from the earth. Revelation 11:6. They have power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. Number one. Here again is another similarity with the ministry of Elijah. Elijah, in James chapter 5, verse 17, says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And uh, you can read that in the book of Kings, that account of how uh, during the earthly ministry of Elijah, uh, he shut up heaven so it did not rain. There's a similarity in the judgment, namely withholding rain. And then thirdly, there is the similarity in the length of the judgment, namely three and a half years. Elijah's man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and, he, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. So it is in this period of time, this 1260 days, it's three and a half years in which there's no rain. Again, you see the similarities between Elijah and this uh, witness. B, they have power over the water to turn it to blood. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood. Here is similarity with the ministry of Moses. They have power to smite the earth with plagues as often as they desire. End of verse six, underlying section. And to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So these two witnesses bear a great deal in common with the ministries of Moses and Elijah. Again, as we have this informing theology, this foreshadowing of what is taking place, uh, something that is quite similar to what has already happened in the Old Testament. Number four, the apparent success of the beast against the two witnesses. I say apparent for there is a temporary success. It looks like the beast is winning, but he loses, A. The beast can have no power over the witnesses until they have completed their task demonstrating that God is still in control. For it says in verse seven, and when they had finished their testimony when they had completed their ministry, when they had been done proclaiming 
God's truth. Then all this takes place. And it shows that the beast did not cut them short. The beast did not overpower them. The beast did not uh, conquer them. Uh, their ministry was completed. And once the ministry was completed, then God allowed these other things to take place. B, the beast comes out of his abode for a threefold purpose. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit. Number one, the beast comes out of his abode to war against the two witnesses. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them. Uh, so there is indeed a battle that is taking place. Two, the beast comes out of the abode to overcome the two witnesses, to conquer them. The idea is to render them powerless and to invalidate their witness. It is to silence them, and it's also to demonstrate that what they are saying is not true. Uh, so there is a contest, if you will, going on in which the beast is challenging the power of the two witnesses. Number three, the beast comes out of his abode to kill the two witnesses and to kill them. The beast will not stop at discrediting the two witnesses. He wants them dead. Uh, that is his purpose. That is his desire. That's what he's about, to kill these two witnesses. The beast will appear to be victorious over the two witnesses. The beast will not be consumed with fire from heaven as were their opponents of the two witnesses. Before the two witnesses are calling down fire from heaven and their enemies are being destroyed. Now the greatest enemy, which is this beast that has come to conquer, uh, to kill, to, to silence, no fire from heaven. And so it looks like he is being victorious. It looks like his power is greater than the power of the witnesses. Number two, the beast will in fact kill the two witnesses. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Number five, the wicked will rejoice over the death of the two witnesses. Their dead bodies will be in the middle of the streets of a wicked Jerusalem. Revelation 11, verse 8. And their dead bodies will be in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. So number one, the city is indeed Jerusalem, for it's the city where Christ was slain. It's the city where Christ was uh, crucified, verse 8. So when we read this, that it's, the city of Sodom, when it's the uh, city of, of Egypt, we're to understand that that, that is in a metaphorical sense. It's showing how wicked Jerusalem is, that it's no better than Sodom. It's no better than Egypt. It's a wicked city because it's personified as Sodom and Egypt. Again, the reference to Egypt goes right along with the parallel with the plagues of the tribulation and those that come upon Egypt. We spent, uh, it was last week, uh, looking at each of the seven plagues uh, and how those plagues were represented in the plagues that came 
upon Egypt. So we constantly get these Egypt references in the book of Revelation. Number three, God used this same personification in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which the Lord saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So Isaiah is given this vision in the time of, of uh, Amos of a future Israel and of the city of Jerusalem. That's the context. If you look at Isaiah 1.10, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Here he's not talking to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's talking to the city of Judah, uh, of Jerusalem. Uh, verse, verse 1. So there were more than one time that God referred to Jerusalem as Sodom as Egypt, meaning that they were no better, all right? The people that were dwelling in Jerusalem were no better people than those that had been dwelling in Gomorrah or those people that had been dwelling in Egypt. They were just as worthy as judgment, for judgment came upon the city of Gomorrah. Judgment came upon the Egyptians, and judgment was going to come upon the city of Jerusalem because its inhabitants were no better. That's the essence of the thought. Moving on. The dead bodies will be prevented from being buried. Revelation 11.9. For three and a half days, uh, uh, let me read that again. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. Let me give it a side here, because I didn't say anything about this. Uh, peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies. The idea is that the peoples of the world, even though this is taking place in Jerusalem, the peoples of the world are going to see these dead bodies laying in Jerusalem. And it's interesting to read the old, old commentaries. And the old commentaries almost... Uh, without exception, say, that can't happen. This has got to be uh, some kind of symbolic language. There's no way that peoples around the world could see what's happening in Jerusalem. Fast forward to 2019. The remotest places uh, upon the face of this earth have cell phones. Uh, I was just talking to somebody this this week, uh, it might have been Amber, I don't know. We were talking about talking with somebody about cell phones and how people walk out of the bush in Africa with a cell phone in their hand. Uh, Suki and, and Matt were uh, amazed by that. Well, with, with satellite technology, Skyping, you don't need to be informed how people can view an event around the face of this earth. This is literal. And the, the nations are going to zero in on this incredible happening because the beast kills these two witnesses. It's going to make the evening news. All right? It's going to be covered. And it's such a great triumph that they don't want those bodies buried. 
They want them out there to be seen. And not only to be seen, but to be mocked, to be ridiculed for uh, refusing to bury uh, in the Old Testament was a way uh, to demonstrate um, rebuke. In, <clears throat> so I have here, it was customary to dishonor a body by refusing it a proper burial. In Genesis 40, 19, it says, in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from your soul and hang you on a tree and the birds will eat the flesh from you. And so rather than give them a proper burial, uh, Pharaoh is going to allow the birds to eat them. In 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 10, and the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the, in the territory of Jezreel and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. Again, God's judgment upon, Jez, uh, upon Jezebel. She wasn't going to get proper burial. Well, here these, these bodies are just laying in the streets and they say, uh, don't anybody bury those. Okay, just lay them there. See, the dead bodies of the two witnesses become a spectacle for all the world to see. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies. Number one, the wicked rejoice, for they see themselves out from under God's judgment. They perceive themselves as having won. Verse 10, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry. Okay, so there's going to be partying going on. Here are these witnesses, and they're talking about God's judgment, and they're calling down fire from heaven, and now here comes the beast, and he opposes them, and he kills them. And the wicked are saying, right on, okay. Overcame that problem. Their history. Number two, the rejoicing of the wicked will turn to great fear. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on all those who saw them. And those that saw them are the peoples around the world, of every tribe and nation. So this witness and this powerful demonstration as these two witnesses are raised to life again. D, the ministry of prophecy has now ended. God calls the witnesses home. Revelation 11, verse 12. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. The phrase loud voice occurs 24 times in the book of Revelation. It is a loud voice drawing attention to the action. Um, you have in John chapter 11, where Jesus uh, raises Lazarus from the dead. If you can remember that chapter, uh, Lazarus has been dead for three days. Three days is a, again, pretty informing theology of a period of time of death and resurrection. Christ dead for three days. Lazarus is read dead for three days. Here are these uh, witnesses dead for three days. And when Jesus calls Lazarus forth, it says, and he cried with a loud voice, and I won't do it tonight, but Lazarus, come forth. And the reason it's a loud voice is to draw attention to that cave where Lazarus is buried. Because there's crying, there's weeping, there's all this going on, and Jesus doesn't want anybody to miss it. So there's this loud voice that says, Lazarus, come forth. And everybody's eyes shift, okay? So in the book of Revelation, there's this loud voice. It's God's proclamation. 
so that what is taking place is understood by all. They hear this voice of God saying to these two witnesses, come up here. <clears throat> Number two, the enemies of the witnesses see the witnesses depart into heaven. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a, in a cloud and their enemies watched them. They couldn't do anything about it. They couldn't stop them. Uh, they couldn't prohibit what's taking place. And it was this visible witness to them all as these witnesses go into heaven. Number three. Then there was a great earthquake, which is a foreshadow of judgment. At that hour, there was a great earthquake. Again, if you think about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, Matthew 27, 50 and 51. It says, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. He's hanging on the cross and yielded up the spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. There was a great earthquake that accompanied the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there is this great earthquake that accompanies the ascension of the two witnesses into heaven. E. The enemies of the witnesses then give glory to God. Revelation eleven thirteen. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. Number one, there are questions as to whether those who glorified God were actually converted or not. Uh, is this uh, purely human fear and they outwardly confess uh, the might and great and power and glory of God or is this in fact conversion and people are turning to God in faith? Well, number two, one might liken this to the conversion of the centurion after witnessing the phenomenon surrounding Jesus' death. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Truly, this was the Son of God. We believe that the centurion was converted. We believe that he, in fact, was saved. Uh, at that time, that moment, uh, when he saw all that took place, it was virtually undeniable in his mind that this was definitive proof. He was the Son of, Son of God. Number two, the informing theology. Okay, we keep going back. I keep going back to Egypt. I keep going back to these plagues. I keep going back to the history. Because, again, the informing theology is incredibly helpful to us as we work our way through the book of Revelation. What happened in the past tends to repeat in the future. And it's intended to do that. We are to learn from these previous experiences. So back to Exodus chapter 12. After the plagues are ended and... The Passover meal has been eaten. The Israelites are packing up and heading out and are on their journey to the promised land. Okay, so 
they are departing from Egypt. Exodus 12:37 and the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth about 6000 men on foot besides women and children and now these words a mixed multitude also went up with them now this mixed multitude consisted of a diversity of nations and groups there were a lot of different people that were in Egypt not just the Egyptians and again one of the purposes for all these things that came upon Egypt was a witness that was to take place for the entire world. So, along with the Israelites, there are this multitude that are referred to as a mixed up multitude, for they of, of diverse ethnic origin, but here's the important thing, but they're also a mixed multitude because it involves the converted and the unconverted. All right. There were people that were regenerate. There were Egyptians and peoples of other nations that came to faith through the plagues that came upon the land of Egypt. So we have the regenerate in Exodus 9, 18 through 20. Uh, Behold, about this time hour, uh, tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail fails on them. Then whoever heard the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. So there were these these people that feared the word of the Lord. There were the people that understood when Moses spoke, these things happened. They got the drift. Pharaoh, he kept hardening his heart and God kept hardening Pharaoh's heart. But there were a lot of Egyptians that were going through all these plagues and they knew that that these were coming because of what Moses was doing and they learned to fear. (laughs) And when They heard that there was going to be hail. They got their livestock out of the fields. And then there were a lot of Egyptians that kept their livestock in the fields. All right. And then, so there's this regenerate group. And then there is an unregenerate group. Numbers 11, uh, 1. And the people, now the children of Israel in the wilderness. And the people complained in hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned them up and consumed them, outlying parts of the camp. Verse 4. Now the rabble, okay? The rabble are the unregenerate part of the mixed multitude. <laughs> They're the, the no-gooders. They're the good-for-nothingers. They are the people who are just professing faith outwardly, but have not actually had the Spirit of God do a work in their hearts. All right? So they were going along on the journey, but they weren't truly born again. And that evidences itself. As soon as things start going hard, they start complaining, wish they were back in Egypt again, and they have a negative impact upon the Israelites. Number 11, verse 4. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept in again. So you notice the rabble 
and the children of Israel are two different groups. It isn't the children of Israel who are the rabble. It's this mixed multitude that's in their midst, some regenerate and some unregenerate. So note the rabble are distinguished from the people of Israel. B, God intended that the plagues be a witness to the Egyptians and the entire world of the majesty and power of God. Exodus 7 verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Exodus 9 15. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up. He's talking to Pharaoh. To show my power so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So what was happening in these plagues that were coming upon Egypt was God declaring to the Egyptians, I am the Lord. And not only to the Egyptians, but to the entire earth. I am the Lord. Some came to believe that he was the Lord and that he was in control. And the vast majority did not. See, therefore, those who give glory to God after the death of the two witnesses might be comprised of both regenerate and unregenerate. I think that's the way we're to understand this. All right, so you have this great turning and people saying that God is God. Well, some of them are rabble and some of them are, are truly regenerate. The identification of the two witnesses. That's what everybody likes, but we're going to skip that tonight. Uh, because bottom line is we don't know who they are. Um, let's go to C. So I've got three minutes. The two witnesses are not identified by name. Uh, well, let me, I, I will go over this real, real quick. Um, under B, the two witnesses are two individuals as opposed to the church in Israel. In reform circles, there are a lot of people that like to spiritualize this passage and refer to these two witnesses as not two individuals, but they are the church and they are Israel. And then they, they do all this kind of stuff with that. But it, it, it doesn't work. And it doesn't work for a number of reasons. Number one, there's an article in front of the witnesses making them specific or, or definite witnesses. Number two, the individuals are attired. They're in sackcloth and ashes. Uh, number three, these individuals are killed and restored to life. That's the most important one. If this is the church, in what significant way can you have the church dead for three days and come alive for three days? All right? uh, how can Israel be dead for three days and come alive for three days. How could that be any kind of demonstrable way in which God's power is displayed in some kind of incredible uh, magnitude? All right? The only way this makes sense is it's talking about two literal individuals who are alive, who are dead, and who are alive again. And again, we have the examples of Moses and Elijah. C. The two witnesses are not identified by name. There are great similarities in the ministries of Moses and Elijah. That is not to say that these two witnesses are necessarily Moses and Elijah. There is an interesting discussion concerning the passage of Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. Behold, 
I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so a lot of people look at that verse and say, okay, one of these witnesses is Elijah because Malachi 4.6. But Jesus interprets Malachi 4.6 as who? John the Baptist. Okay. Uh, Jesus says, if you will, this is, this is Elijah who is to come. They say, where has where it come? All right. Um, it's hard to see that this is Elijah, Elijah and Moses, uh, particularly because they die. All right. Um, how can Elijah and Moses die again? Uh, then it's argued, well, Elijah was translated. He went up into heaven. But it's, it's got a lot of problems. Bottom line, we don't know who they are. It doesn't matter who they are. It matters what they do. And the point is, these are two individuals who have witness, who have power, who demonstrate that power, can call down fire from heaven, take on the beast. The beast seems like he wins kills them, everybody's rejoicing for three days, and then look out, because they rise again. Some, when they see that, say, this is God, and they're converted. Others say, this is God, but they're not converted. Uh, This is, this is the end, but it's not the end. Uh, I must have given you my not quite final copy. I always have so many of these copies floating around. <clears throat> because this becomes very helpful and informative when we look at the millennial kingdom. When Christ returns and rules on this earth, he's ruling over both regenerate and unregenerate people. And people ask, where do these unregenerate people come from? How, where are these unregenerate people? How do they get to be a part of the kingdom that Christ is ruling over? And then at the end of the tribulation, I mean, excuse me, at the end of the millennium, we'll see this when we get to Revelation 19, 20, etc. But at the end of the millennium, then these unregenerate rise up and then Christ puts down the rebellion and then that's the, the final end. Well, people say, where did they come from? Here they are. This is where they come from. All right? And it's very helpful as we look at what happened with the children of Israel as they went out of the land of Egypt and as they were entering the promised land, there's this mixed multitude that's with them. And there is this mixed multitude in the millennium that Christ is ruling over. Where do they come from? They come from this chapter. They come from those people who see the witnesses and say, wow, this must be the power of God. And he spares their lives. They don't die. 7,000 die during this time. But they continue on. Some in true belief, some in unbelief. And here again is the great mystery to grace. Uh, Jesus said, if they will not believe my word, neither will they believe even if one would rise from the dead. Even with this great demonstration of power, there are still going to be people who don't believe. Because there will be people that do believe and give honor and glory to God. For his purposes are not thwarted. The beast cannot conquer.
only temporarily, but not for any duration. So too, it may seem like now the church is losing, but Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will build my church. God's purposes will be accomplished. His reign will be established. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and the acknowledgement of these individuals who are your witnesses, these prophets that you raise up, the power that you give to them. And uh, Lord, how you demonstrate your great power, uh, even in giving them the abilities to do these incredible miracles and signs, even as you have granted in past days the prophets to do miracles and signs, even as opposition is overcome by fire coming down from heaven, even as it was done in the ministry of Elijah, calling down fire from heaven. And Lord, there will be a people that you will save. And there also will be a people who will give outward allegiance, but inwardly will not be converted. Oh Lord, help us to, to see uh, the way in which your spirit continues to work in every age. And we thank you, oh God, for eyes that see, and for hear, ears that hear, and for hearts that believe. And oh Lord, we, we just think of so many today who uh, claim to have a relationship with God, but yet are not born again. And uh, we, we pray, our Father, in these final days, uh, that your will indeed is done. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, and you are dismissed.